You are listening to the Amodamar podcast. In this series, Amoda explores her essential teaching through conversation and excerpts from interviews and events. To find out more about events and to sign up for her newsletter, go to www.amodamar.com. Please subscribe, comment and share if this podcast moves you. And if you feel called to donate, please go to the website. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy. Greetings one and all and welcome back to uh, another podcast with Amoda Ma. Uh, my name is Kavi, if you don't know that already. And uh, I I often join Amoda to, to explore maybe some of the more unusual and, you know, often just the normal kind of aspects of her experience, of her teaching, of non-duality, of, yeah, um, all of these kind of things. Greetings, Amoda. Greetings, Carrie. <laughs> okay, well, today we, we're actually going to explore something that might be uh, there's a bit of left of centre or a bit unusual uh, for people who are used to the podcast. And we seem to have done quite a few of them now. But we wanted to we wanted to explore something. Let's call it the art of running and the experience of no self. Yeah, there's a number of different titles that we could give it. But as a as a kind of prelude to uh, diving into this a, a, a kind of unusual exploration for us. You know, both of both Moda and I are are runners to to a greater or lesser degree. Um, I came at running later in life, and I think Moda, you were uh, you were running earlier in your life. Is that correct to say? I started running when I was about twenty three. Yeah, that's considerably earlier than me. I was busy running towards experience or running away from experience. So actually, I was a very qualified runner in those days, but uh, not in the physical sense and certainly not in any healthy sense. Um, okay, so, we, 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 you know, but but what I mean is that contextually, you know, we, but we, we both have had similar kind of experiences and and the experiences that we're going to talk about. So points for discussion as we open this up are uh, the peak experience in running, what's called the runner's high. What is this and did you experience it? But before you answer any of these questions, I'm just going to run through some of the other possibilities. Is there a parallel between running and meditation? How Maybe why does running allow an experience of no self or transcendence? And was this your first taste of the non-dual experience or the non-dual realisation? Sorry, not an experience. And did it lead to your spiritual path? Was it included in that? So I think we can manoeuvre this this conversation to to not be something separate from non-duality or spiritual exploration, but actually... You know, there's a there's a there's a root of it 
in there somewhere because I know that I know this for, from from my own experience of lots of miles of running now that there is something about it. So let me take you back. You're 23 years old. We don't need to go into some of the physical, you know, where you were or what you were doing unless you want to include that. Let's talk about the experience then of of running. What happened to you? Why is this conversation on the table now, 20, 30, 40, quite a lot of years later? <laughs> I stop at 40. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I'm talking to 40 years later. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mention the age. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, yes, it, it is somewhat left of centre and it's certainly... I think this conversation is not intended to be uh, a sort of uh, <laughs> formula or teaching in any way. It's it's really, um, I think this conversation has arisen because actually it was a very large part of my life and still is in some ways, not the same as it was. And we'll, we'll look at that, but it was very much a part of my life and it was actually um, inadvertently and at the time unbeknownst to me, it's only in retrospect, the beginning or the foundation for um, uh, a, a spiritual inquiry, strangely enough, that, you know, it took a long time for the two to kind of, for one to lead to the other, but I guess that's what we're exploring. So, it, this, you know, this is not going to be relevant to Everybody, it's not like this is what running does for you. No. And, and in a sense, it's actually in, in many ways not really about running. Not really, no. I mean, <laughs> no, exactly. It's you, not about you, running. And the experience that we're talking about, if, if that's a useful word, is that going to be applicable to other modalities of, let's say, exercise, skiing? Yes, I, I, I think... Yes, I, I, we, it can definitely be broadened out. I think anything that demands uh, what we might call uh, a peak performance um, and, and, and I think something that is repetitive. I don't mean repetitive that you go out running every day. I mean, there's a certain activity in it that, is, um, that has a rhythm to it. So we could be talking about, skiing we could be talking about long distance swimming we could be talking about long we're essentially talking about long distance running just going right. for a two mile jog isn't isn't enough okay, um right. you know Cy- middle yeah. middle to to long distance yeah cycling we could talk about um uh well i guess even gymnastics although i have no direct experience of it mm. there's certainly a peak performance in that and also uh and we can broaden this out to um, what we might call uh, ecstatic dancing. Oh. Yeah. Osho's active meditations. Mm. They're all fundamentally, uh, I mean, the, the, uh, the active meditations, Osho's active meditations and even ecstatic dancing, and we can talk about what we mean by that are designed to facilitate the very experience that we are going to go back to and describe that came about through long distance running. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah, I see. So t- for me, one led to the other over a period of, of many years. 
Um, so let me, so so tell us, yeah, tell me then, yeah, because it it it's like something I know. I mean, this is actually quite a long time ago, before some of the um, some of the new newer research and information has been released, because everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people know about this now. But then you you stumbled into it, and so you you stumbled into the runner's high. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, this was back in the early 80s and I literally s- almost stumbled into, into running and I stumbled into the runner's high. And then I stumbled into my academic research about the runner's high. Mm. Um, so it, it was a major part of my life. I, you know, I stumbled into running because I had not a single athletic fiber in my body. I, I wasn't interested in sports or athletics or even exercise. Um, but I happened to have a boyfriend at the time uh, who was a triathlete of all things and a marathon runner. And so our Sundays were spent him dragging me along on seven, eight mile runs when I'd never done more than a very sort of mediocre jog for maybe a mile. So (laughs) I was kind of pushed into it and I was very unfit. Um, But somehow I I got into it and the, the, the fitness built up and I started to enjoy it. And then once I got over seven, eight miles, uh, something else started to happen. And what started to happen was what I ex- experienced as the time at the time um, as no self. It's like I wasn't there. I didn't feel disembodied. It just felt like the body was happening by itself. The running was happening by itself. Um, There was nothing, there was no doer there. And so it became effortless. And I had no framework for that, either in terms of the runner's high, which as you say, uh, nowadays, it's just common knowledge or language or um, understanding. Um, I had no framework at the time. And I also had no spiritual framework in the sense of it being, um, well, I did describe it at the time. I, I did, I did kind of know what it was, but not really in, in, in the terms of awakening. I knew it was an experience of, um, the ego self no longer being there. What I felt like the ego was, was a, was a sort of tight container for the self. And in, in that long distance running experience, I felt that container dissolved and the experience was one of oneness with the whole of life. And it was in sharp contrast to my everyday experience of being very limited by self. So I was very self-conscious and very awkward and very depressed actually (laughs) and very unable to express myself and very much, you know, concerned with myself as an imperfect person. Um, so the contrast between that everyday experience, which I didn't know anything other than that, um, and then this freedom <laughs> where there was no self there. It's like I'd broken out of the confines of some, I guess, mental construct about myself was incredibly powerful. 
And even though I had no actual context for it, it sort of, it led me directly to do research on it. Um, I was still, I was at university at the time and, and I was wanting to, to do a PhD. I didn't really know in which direction the PhD would go, but this was it. It suddenly hit me that this was a transcendence of the ordinary egoic state. And somehow the running, maybe it was the breath, the repetitive breath, maybe it was something else. I didn't know what the mechanism was, triggered it or catalyzed it or facilitated it. And I wanted to know what that was. And I stumbled across four studies, which were the only studies at the time, all in America, about this relationship between transcendence transcendence of the ordinary uh, state of consciousness and long distance aerobic running. Yeah. Aerobic being the, the, the intake of oxygen. Um, And I think one of those studies related it to uh, the same state of uh, Zen meditation And that was my first introduction to meditation, to other states of consciousness. And so I, I, I did follow that up with my PhD, which was a disaster, but (laughs) 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 for other reasons. Um, But uh, it did through that investigation lead me to meditation (laughs) So there was a direct correlation. Um, looking back on it, it was a it was a glimpse of no self, and also a, a very visceral uh, experience of oneness, like the boundary between me and the world, me and the existence had dissolved. So it did have a very, I guess, you could say, spiritual quality to it. It had a. a and this happened several times. It just wasn't, it wasn't once. I remember once running in Greece and that was a very long distance or quite long distance run, maybe 10 miles or something. And that expansion of self and that loss of self, and then a kind of um, really just a oneness with, with existence brought me to me to my knees and I, I, I was on the side of the road running up a hill towards the end of this long run. And I just kind of tears, tears of joy and tears of like the heart opened. It was like one, one heart. So it was a very spiritual experience. Again, I, didn't, I wasn't following spirituality or having a spiritual practice, but eventually that led me to, to, to meditation. Um, did, you, did you have any prior you were about 23 did you have any prior uh, sort of experiences in 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 life a of of a kind of spirituality or of oneness and i don't just mean as a baby i mean as a <laughs> yeah, i mean i mean uh, something 
something for you to, because as what you're describing is quite sudden in a way or unusual or unexpected, but you were, there was, there was, there was a certain preparedness, preparedness for it. Um, no curiosity about it (laughs) well in terms of experiences no it comes completely out of the blue um completely out of the blue this this is uh this took place uh several years i think i mean it was a long time ago but it was definitely yes it was it was several years before any um experimentation with psychedelic substances, mm-hmm. which brought about the same experience, similar experience, mm-hmm. certainly the same glimpse. Um, so it was a long time before that. Um, the closest to it <clears throat> was the experience around the age of 10, 11, 12, of falling asleep. And just at the point of falling asleep, having a very visceral sense of being the tiniest speck as I fell asleep, it's like the self became smaller and smaller and smaller till it was a pinprick in the vastness of emptiness, emptiness being the the sleep state, yeah, yeah, where the self disappears. And I, I would catch myself at that moment because a great terror would arise, like I was becoming nothing and dissolving into the great nothingness. And I would jump out of that quite terrorized. And that would happen, you know, frequently around that age. Of course, I had absolutely no context for it. Um, and then, and then nothing for, for, for years until that running experience. So, so, you know, how come you noticed it? As opposed to who you noticed? <laughs> Well, I'm going to ask about, did you discuss it with your partner? Oh, I see. Why um, didn't he notice it? Well, see, he didn't what I'm notice trying to, what, it in me. What I'm try- he did? No. Ah. See, what I'm trying to say is, is I, know, I, know, I know something about you, and I know how, although I didn't know you then, I know how squeezed you were, you know, it was, it was quite a Sylvia Plath-like bell jar sense of the tight self that you were living in, uh, existing in unhappiness. You know, there's, there was a, the, the, the suicidal tendencies, the muteness, all of this kind of stuff. And, and if you, one thinks about that, then, you know, then, and then suddenly almost you're experiencing this, which is, even though it's, 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 it's strong, it's still actually quite subtle, yeah, so you here you are, Modi. You've gone from one state of brrr, tightness. Suddenly, you're jettisoned and transported almost into this other state of of, of consciousness. Um, and I'm wondering whether it's almost the contrast that actually, you know, sh- showed you something. It's the contrast as well as the experience itself. I think so. I mean, this is very difficult to quantify. I mean, like I said, my my boyfriend at the time was a long distance runner, swimmer, cyclist. I think he experienced the 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 runner's high or peak yeah. performance high. Absolutely, that's why he loved it so much. And you know, um, 
but it didn't mean anything in a way to him. It was just, it was just, yeah, there's yeah I think that's high. what you're it, saying. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. Is, yeah. I think so. Yeah. I, I think for me, it was such a stark contrast between self and no self. And maybe I had a proclivity. I mean, that's why the rest of my life, uh, you know, not, not immediately following that, but not long after that became only the, the, the spiritual search, only the, the, the question, who am I? What am I beyond this ego encapsulated me? Um, and you know, for, for him, for instance, it didn't take him in that direction. So maybe I had a proclivity towards it. Maybe it led me towards it because of that stark contrast. Uh, I, it's difficult to quantify. It certainly was quite a catalyst for me. Yeah. And then you, because uh, you, then you, you kind of, that peaked an interest or a, some passion. And then you started exploring that, didn't you, as a research thing? Yeah. So you sort of decided to research the physicality of it almost. Well, I didn't actually. I wanted to research the psychology of it. Oh. In other words, what what is this? What are these different states of consciousness? Can we map them out? Can they be known? Can we... Uh, uh, sort of get there, if you like, through different techniques, whether it's long distance running. I was interested in the idea of the brain synchronization and that Zen monks in deep meditative states had a particular synchronization of the, of the brain hemispheres. I was interested in that, oh, yeah. but not so much from the physiological level because I've never really been interested in the material mechanics of things. I was interested in a, in a psych, on a psychological level as, as a map of human consciousness that can take us beyond the limited self. Um, when I say my PhD was a disaster, it was a disaster because I was in a, uh, uh, department of psychology that was very experimental and science-based. And so it became uh, an arduous uh, job of looking into the mechanics, yeah, the biochemistry, the uh, electro, I can't even remember what it's called, but all the electrical responses of the brain and the skin and all this stuff. And I was, I got so bogged down in it and it was so boring to me. Um, and, you know, I, I, I tried to, you know, get through it. But the evidence that was being uh, looked for, if you like, by my team or department or supervisor was on the, on the, on the psychophysiological level. And to me, that was not the main point of what I was looking at. That's almost like a byproduct to me. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I got, I got lost in that. And that's a whole other story. Um, but, <laughs> but it's, but, it, but as a chain of events goes along, yeah, that it actually has, it worked out real well as life can do, that it's actually, well, it, the, it, it led you into something and you explored that and then it led into something else. Yes. Well, actually it, it, the word transcendent, which I had come across through that running experience, either, I don't know where it came from, either I read about it or I understood it innately, or it was somehow in my field of, of, of language or conceptualization, um, uh, led me to, uh, 
well, I didn't know if it led me, but the, 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 the thing that links it to the next part of or next phase of my exploration was that I'm standing in the London underground and there's a big poster that says transcendental meditation. Oh. <laughs> and this light bulb went off and I'm like, whoa, here I am looking into transcendence. I mean, like I said, it turned out not to be about transcendence. It turned out to be about biochemistry and physiology, but the initial uh, impulse was the transcendent experience. And it had the word meditation next to it. Well, that definitely piqued my interest. And so that led me in a slightly, you know, a, a side road where I started to explore meditation. And did Not you as find- part as my PhD at all, but no. as my own did thing. You, did, you, did you find then that the meditation that then you embarked on, transcendental meditation, uh, gave you the same thing as the runner's high? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, well, actually, to my absolute horror, it did the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to to take part in these uh, transcendental meditation groups in London. Um, uh, first of all, all the all the all the leaders or you know group holders were dressed in suits, um, and it looked like a sort of bank managers meeting or something, uh, which completely freaked me out. It's not at I all what I expected. That. Did they they did, that, yeah. That, that persona they put that forward in the yeah. in those days. I think they were just trying to make it conventionally appealing right. in some kind well, of it way. It made it very conventionally unappealing. <laughs> it would to a um, freako like you. <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, well, I was pretty conventionally dressed then, but no, uh, I'm still, about it... the inside. <laughs> uh, but what happened? I, I, I took it on. I, I liked the ethos of it and, and the idea of it. And I really wanted to try meditation. The fact that it was meant to be transcendental was, was great, you know. But I found that despite the rhythmical uh, repetition of the mantra, I was faced very quickly and horrifyingly with the noise in my head, like it's like it, it really highlighted the 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 thoughts as it would do, yes, of course, to such a degree that it was unbearable. And I did plod on with it for I don't know how long, maybe a year or something. Mm. But it just seemed to have the opposite effect. Now maybe that's part of it. Maybe I should have kept going, but. It, it just didn't feel for me. It just wasn't for me. And so I, I stopped. Um, of course, I returned to meditation in a different way uh, a number of years later. Maybe I wasn't ready then and so on and so on. Was, that, was the uh, transcendental meditation breath a, 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 a breath movement? It's not, no, is no it? it wasn't. It was just a mantra. You see, the, that the, you repeat. Yeah. So what you said earlier, you know, was like you don't really know when you when you started that running, whether it was the breath, whether it was the repetitiveness of the body movement, and and the fact that we're going to continue this conversation that goes into you starting the you know your own classes in the ecstatic dance, and what was the key figure in you know the key player yeah. in that? Actually, it's breath. 
Yes, the breath is important. Yes. You know, it's not in, in, in this spiritual language. It's easy to kind of just bypass this, but but the breath is a, is a fundamental thing, right? Yes, so, yes. Well, a number, I mean, many things led to many things. And so after the collapse of the PhD and the uh, experimentation with different psychedelics and then different psycho-spiritual methods, you know, breath work being one of them, um, you know, gradually there was a sort of uh, an undoing of the <laughs> shell of personality uh, and, and so on. Uh, and then I guess to, to jump, to make it relevant to, to this particular conversation uh, without going into my whole life story, which we've probably tapped into at other times. But yes, it eventually, I sort of returned to, um, from a very different perspective, to rhythmical movement rhythmical breath and rhythmical sound. Well, I just realized that that's actually the three things running (laughs) sort of loosely the rhythmical sound of TM and rhythmical breathing, Mm. uh, which I'd specifically and powerfully and potently experienced through rebirthing. I remember standing on a hill at some point this is, as I say, quite some time after the PhD and after the TM and after having been on a path of exploration, self-exploration, spiritual exploration, and so on. Um, and the three things came together somehow. And I, I just intuitively, uh, not necessarily scientifically, but intuitively felt there was something in that that would, those three rhythms, when they're brought together, could facilitate uh, what I would call an ecstatic experience, the, the, the true meaning of ecstasy, meaning standing outside of yourself. Again, not standing outside of yourself as a dis- disembodied entity, but expanding mm. that uh, tight shell of self. Mm. And uh, I intuitively... <laughs> developed a method and then found correlates to that correlates through um, shamanic dancing, mm-hmm. trance dance, uh, <clears throat> which is done with the breath and blindfold and drum. Uh, and then having gone to India and experienced Osho's active meditations, Sufi whirling, uh, shaking meditation, which is mm. really an ancient Qigong technique. Mm-hmm. And it was like the pieces were coming together. There were all these correlates that actually this is a very natural, ancient um, uh, experience that has been that has appeared in many forms through many cultures and many traditions uh, as a way of transcending the self. Mm. Uh, I mean, Sufi whirling, you, you end up with this sense that there's no doer. There's no doer. It's being done by itself and it becomes very divine. There's a, there's a palpable sense of God, Godness. Yeah. Doing this through you. And that was present 
during your initial running experience. Yes, yes. So it all sort of made sense. Um, now, of course, these are experiences rather than abiding states. <laughs> I was going to ask, you know, do you, do you think, just cutting to contemporary life now as a teacher that you are, that actually doesn't <laughs> do that? We dropped the the body is the gateway of of giving a, an experience. So now there isn't that. You don't do that. And do you find, you know, that the the non duality for the non dual scene, for instance, uh, lacks for some of that? I don't mean as a, a, you know, because what you've said is is that you you have a glimpse in some of these experiences. It's not perennial. It doesn't, it, it's not abiding in a sense. It opens the door. You have a look out. It's like, wow, that's, a, that's an, an unusual. It gives a visceral experience, but visceral experiences shouldn't be undervalued. You know, it's a, it's a taste. It's a good taste. And it, it's a taste that can, you know, give you a, a context for instance. So mm. do, is, it, is it missed a bit? Um, this is a, a nuanced question with a nuanced answer, if you like, in the sense that having worked with so many people over the years, and we say hundreds, even, you know, maybe touching on the thousands, through the ecstatic dance, through the breath work, um, through the active meditations and then working more directly or not more directly, totally directly through inquiry, dialogue and so on. I would say that it seems that there's no set formula. You can have a very powerful visceral experience and yet there's something in the self that wants to keep going back to that visceral experience and becomes in some ways, if you like, addicted to that visceral experience, takes ownership of that visceral experience. And yet in the rest of life, there's no genuine inquiry into who am I and living from that true realization which is not an experience that comes and goes. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is that there are some individuals where you can, if you like, dialogue and bring genuine inquiry to the conversation. And still there's no energetic uh dissolvement of the self and that so a visceral experience might be helpful to get that glimpse to get that template to to know that there is another reality if you like or state of consciousness in which the self is not primary <laughs> yeah so it's very individual yeah. I, 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 I think, you know, it, it can be one or the other or both or, or a blend. There's no, it's not, there's no cause and effect really. I have, I have noticed, you know, with some people that we've worked with, you know, who have, for instance, have had experiences 
of psychedelics, not necessarily good experiences, but experiences nevertheless, have 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 you know maybe they've glimp you know had their door opened a little bit, but again, not necessarily. Yeah, not not it, it, is it helpful or is it not helpful? Like you say, it's a kind of moot point, really, isn't it? There's such a tendency for the acquisitive mind to look for experiences. So even in meditation, uh, and I've seen that with long-time meditators. Yes, of course, yeah. That meditation, especially long-time meditation, yeah, years and years of Zen practice or whatever it might be, really reveal an inner silence, yeah, the ground of being, the emptiness. And even then, there's a subtle acquisition of that, a yearning for that, a wanting to recreate that experience. And then a great disappointment that you can't recreate it because it's not packageable. It's not, it's not something to be possessed. So it is part of the, um, uh, the, the tendency of the acquisitive mind until that acquisitive mind is no longer there. So yes, experiences are valuable as long as you really, really know that it's just an experience. Huh, yeah. And that's tricky. That's tricky to have that level of clear it, seeing it and tricky. understanding. So sometimes it's counterproductive because you go on a search, you do this meditation and that meditation and that dark retreat and that silent retreat. And, and nothing fundamentally changes. Well, it's quite interesting because it, because running uh, does have that quality as you get older. Because I notice for myself, and I know that I know the, the the high in inverted commas that you talked about. Yeah, because I'm a pretty good runner. I've got the ideal runner's body, but I'm also sixty three years old, and the last few years. You know, I've been running. I've done a lot of miles, and that, and and it's like, oh, I want that again. Oh, I want that again. Oh, I want that again. Even uh, to the point to the to the detriment of the body itself, the acquisitiveness one, right. the wanting it, the wanting it, the wanting it. Yes, well, I can't say I have that. <laughs> I, I yeah. I, I understand that. Yes, I think that's a quality of mind that one ha- that is quite tenacious. Uh, I can't say that I look for a runner's high or look for anything. No, I don't run. anymore. Yeah. I, I sort no, of. There's, what there's what nothing, I'm saying is, there. I had that addictive kind of yes, quality. Yes, you know, like yes. the med- meditative med- returning to meditation, hoping yes. that it's going to solve the problem yes. of self. But ultimately, the running or the meditation doesn't solve the problem of self. That's it, like, right. As you, that is exactly what you're pointing yeah. to. And it I think- opens the door, but eventually, the disappointment of, of of that actually led me to the dissolvement of self. Yes, yes. I mean, it's the same with the ecstatic dancing. It was like. There's absolutely no compulsion for that um, because, you know, the, the, the compulsion to, to go back to a certain state or to refine it or to, uh, yeah, do it again, find it again, experience it again, is really because there's still uh, a movement between self and no, the experience of no self through those modalities. And when that movement between the two is no longer there, yeah, because the 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 the, 
identity of self has sort of collapsed all the way through and you're no longer standing in that on that yeah you're you're <laughs> you're free of identity then there's nothing mm. to look for the the contrast between the two is no longer ecstatic and, and yeah? that's that's quite <laughs> I, I that that is actually what we were discussing really with with paul today was the end of the reward the end of the reward mentality mechanism because then you simply do what you do for its own sake and so you do the running and i do the running now for its own sake just for for yeah, no it's... nothing up ahead really and then meditation i mean we don't do meditation but if per chance of an evening we sit and fall into silence that has a meditative quality well there it is it's like you don't there's nothing, nothing to be gained from it in a sense yes and yeah, i think I mean, you had that you see the sorry but i think you you had that uh, uh, you had that experience early on i think you maybe you were blessed with 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 that you weren't trying to ask particularly after your experience with transcendental meditation where you did try to pursue it where you did have a a goal in a sense and that was thrown back in your face and so you gave up goal oriented for what life <laughs> yeah it was the beginning of undoing that i mean it still had some 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 attempt to um to find and remain in some uh, state of oh, did. peace. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it becomes subtle, doesn't it? Even in, in the subtleties of meditation without a reward up ahead, the reward being enlightenment. I didn't, I didn't have that reward up ahead in terms of enlightenment, but during the meditation practice, there's still a subtle, um, sort of wanting to be in the silence with yeah. nothing obstructing it or occluding it. And then coming out of the meditation where there is a sense of um, <clears throat> openness or uh, peace or unboundedness. And then as life you know, it's want every day is want to do everyday life. You have a feeling, there's another feeling that comes. It may be slight irritation at something that's happening, you know, crossing the road or the scrabbling uh, back of the self. Yeah. And then one, one's disappointed and thinks, well, it's very oh, wow. subtle. I mean, you, you're not, you know, to, to actually see this mechanism playing out requires a lot of clarity and that comes with time. Um, yeah, does, yeah. uh, but I saw even, you know, even when I wasn't looking for a reward system up ahead, I saw that subtle mechanism through my meditation practice and then my everyday life that if I was feeling calm or joy or peace with the, you know, with everything and maybe even love, that's fine. And then some irritation would show up or maybe some melancholy or maybe some I don't know, whatever it might be, some kind of cloud. And there would be this very subtle narrative that said, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not perfect enough yet. You're not loved enough. Life doesn't love you enough to give you the good experience all the time. It's so subtle and so sneaky. And it's only when I started to see that, 
that I could surrender even that identity, that craving. This is the craving and aversion of the mind. But this came after many years of meditation and spiritual practice and surrender to what is. Surrender to what is, is what I eventually came to. And then in that surrender, you can see, well, I could see the subtle movement of mind that wanted it to be different. Yeah. Well, that's when something, you know, real started to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, so, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It's, what, what's, what's amazing in a way is you speak to it. You, you, you speak to it with a, a kind of a delicacy, you know, and a grace in a way, but also with a, with a, with a deep uh, insight and, and in intelligence, if you don't mind me saying so. You actually speak to it very accurately. And, and I'm wondering whether part of your whole journey through life you know the emoda journey you know from from all of that that was you know as a young person as a teenager which was very troubled and very dissociated and very lost and very imprisoned whether you know how much of the desire to escape from yourself was that has been a driving mechanism that at least started you on the journey that you found in that runner's moment. Yes, all of that. I think, you know, I, I, I sort of studied academic psychology. Like I say, the whole thing was a disaster and incredibly dissatisfying and incredibly tedious and boring and disappointing. But the only reason I went in that direction was that I, 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 it seems that I'm a natural psychologist, not in the conventional sense. I'm not interested in human behavior or social studies or statistics or mind control or uh, anything like that. I mean, psychologist in the truest sense of the word. Uh, Even when I was young, uh, as far back as I can remember, I mean, not, not total childhood, but, you know, certainly school age, I, I, I have a natural interest in in <laughs> the true mm-hmm. sense of psychology, psyche. Psyche means the soul in Greek. What is it? What is the soul of human of a human being? In other words, what is the depth? beyond the surface uh, knowledge and who we are as a boy, a girl, uh, uh, you know, whatever role we play, whatever we study, beyond that, who are we? Mm. What are we? What are the depths? Yeah. What, what, is, what is the soul? What is the psyche? What are the different realms of consciousness that we can experience? So I've always had natural interest in that. And of course that got sort of sidetracked by my academic studies, which was nothing to do with that. It was to do with rats, <laughs> experimenting uh, on rat behavior. Some um, would say that's a great synonym for human behavior. Yes, but it's not human behavior that I was interested in. Ah, yes. It was the inner inner world, the depth and richness of uh, the yeah. inner world. You could say that's the transpersonal, but mm-hmm. the transpersonal then takes you to the trans transcendental. So it was that. So I've always had a natural proclivity. And then perhaps over time with self-exploration, self-inquiry, uh, different modalities that I immersed in, not that I learned things on a knowledge level, but just experience and wisdom that came 
and the natural proclivity. It's like I, I had this ability to see into the mechanism of, let's call it, mind or the mechanism of ego self or just self, let's call it, let's not even call it ego, just Mm -hmm. the mechanisms, the strategies that we employ as human beings to create this matrix of both the world that we think we see and experience and the matrix of self that we think we are. And I just could see that in myself and then could see it in others. So I I, I think I, I can dissect it. Again, not from an academic point of view or or scientific or any kind of knowledge base, but just direct, direct experience. Wow. I think you can. I, I, I agree. And and the door kind of the door initially opened through the non-dual experience of a runner's high. Was it? I think it was. I mean, it seems again, like it, it, yeah. it didn't I didn't know that at the time. But it, if I trace it back, I think that was definitely a, a, a seed or a, yes, a seed, a seed of something. Wow. It certainly lifted me out of my depression. Yeah. <laughs> Not completely, but it did uh, give me uh, uh, maybe a faith in life. Yeah, Faith is not a word I particularly like, but it, it did because I, I, I was uh, – I was suicidal and I was suicidal because I, I, well, all sorts of reasons, but one of them was that I, I experienced life as a sort of mechanistic, meaningless, atheistic universe. Um, and I experienced myself as that. And somehow this, this uh, running experience, transcendental experience, because it, like we just explored, had a visceral sense of oneness with the totality um, and this deep love and joy that came from that, at least in, you know, for a short while, not, not, wasn't abiding, mm. but it sort of gave me a little thread of faith in life, not life as to what was going to happen because my life was a mess in some ways, but um, just life itself. <laughs> wow. Okay. I can stay here. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know, you know, for myself that, wow, running was, was so beautiful because I was so sick myself, you know, and, and ill and uh, I'd never done any exercise from the age of about, 13 or something to the age of about 35, 40. So I came at it late and I struggled and I had to go through lots of injury and everything. I didn't, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just kind of interested or I don't know. And then after 10 years or something of, of doing that, I kind of got lighter and lighter and lighter. And when I, you know, had some experiences of running where it was just like, it was just emptiness. Mm-hmm. Just such a relief of emptiness that I never, ever wanted to stop. Mm. And I didn't, I lost myself. I sort of lost, that's that what you're talking about. Mm. And I lost myself. And it wasn't as if there was any high. It's just that I got lost 
in it. And for a moment or two or three, I mean, used to last me only a minute of that kind of sense that actually just for one minute there'd be a freedom that had no cavy in it, that had no mind going on and on. And sure enough, when I got home and I'd be tired or thing like, you know, then the mechanism would kind of start up again, whether it was a good run or a bad run or what's for breakfast or what am I, you know, any any kind of neurotic thing. And so I realised that, you know, it was it was helpful because I really did feel a certain peace, but I also started to realise the temporary nature of experience. Mm. Yeah, that it was, it was, it came. Oh, and there it goes again. Is there anything else? Yeah, the, <laughs> or mm. just acceptance, or just mm. accepting that it was like that. And I know that running made a lot of difference. Mm. Really made a lot of difference mm. to my life. I mean, this is not a convers. This has not been a conversation about running. <laughs> as no, such no yeah. I, I, i've got nothing to say really about running itself <laughs> no i mean you know it's like there's a kind of question that arises in myself it's like why are we still running when that's not there isn't a runner's high anymore and you know yeah. we're not looking for anything from it and uh, i don't know it's sort of two things i i would say one is it's become like brushing my teeth i've yeah. been doing it for so long that it's natural. It's, it's, I don't, you know, it's not something to think about or worry about or, uh, you know, try and achieve anything. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, on the other hand, it, it, it's, it can be picked up and put down. I mean, we're not running every day like we used to, perhaps I used to train and run long distances on Sundays and there was a great joy in that, but there was also a kind of focus. There's nothing like that now. It's just sort of, uh, maybe two or three times a week. And if it's not happening, it's not happening. Of course, there's a consistency because there's a, a functional yeah. side to it. If you stop running and for a long period of time, then and nothing else is happening uh, on a sort of physiological level. It's going to be hard to pick it up again. So it is a bit like brushing your teeth, yeah. um, but it's not uh, got any training in it or any, uh, performance uh attitude towards it it's just natural the body loves it the body yeah. loves to move i mean certainly not 10 miles like it used to but a few miles here and there at a you know slowish pace relaxed pace who cares it's wonderful it's wonderful it's just know, there uh, is a, like a horse there galloping is, why not <laughs> there is a certain delight in it and i must say that when it comes to because I get up so incredibly early sometimes, sneaking out at half past four or five o'clock in the morning and having a run in the darkness and the tranquility and the peace is like, wow, that's mm. such a joy. Me too. I just, mean, I'm out at 5.30 in the morning when it's yeah. not freezing. And yes, it's just that silence and just being in the solitude and, you know, breeze in your hair and, you know, everything's just loose and free, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's lovely. Yeah, it's lovely. Okay. I, um, I think we've, 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 yeah, I think we've used up enough of our quota. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that was entertaining. Um, uh, yeah. Maybe perhaps more than entertaining, informative in some way, a uh, little glimpse behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was nice to to speak about it, to include all things. You know, we don't often speak about the body. I know, I know we're not speaking about the body, but yeah. I don't think to- we mentioned the body once. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it all happens with the body. Not much happens without one. <laughs> but uh, thank you, Amoda. Um, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, tune in. And we'll we'll, we'll uh, do something again soon. Um, hopefully, Amoda will have another podcast guest at some point. And um, until then, Amoda. See you in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Okay, people, thank you very much for listening and tolerating us and putting up with this. We hope it's entertained you in some kind of way, shape or form. Uh, See you again next time. Be well, be blessed and uh, get running. Okay. (laughs) Bye-bye.